Well, thank you, Brian, and thank you all for being here this morning. I've been looking forward to this visit, uh, first time uh, here in Bozeman at Grace Bible Church, although I'm a Montana boy myself. I was born over here in Kalispell. Grandpa used to be carpenter foreman of Glacier National Park, so West Glacier was our backyard. And uh, you just don't get the... You might get the boy out of the mountains, but you don't get the mountains out of the boy. And it's uh, great to be back home again. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. And uh, if you were here Friday night, uh, you heard the first part of this story. Uh, Now comes a second story that happened in uh, my high school years in Brazil. He was a stubby little guy, but he had wire in his soul, his... uh, His uh, background and earlier life had not been easy. He was in the interior of Brazil, uh, an evangelist and a good one. I have no idea how many, but I'm going to guess that he led many hundreds of people to the Lord. And uh, my dad had uh, gone to Pernambuco. It's right out there on the point of uh, Brazil, if you're familiar with the map, uh, the part that sticks farthest over toward Africa. And uh, he was in charge, my dad was, of four little interior churches. Uh, A couple of them had pastors, but a couple uh, were struggling. And Nazaret da Mata was one of the ones that was struggling. And uh, he got Manuel Vieta to go and uh, help hold that church together and try to build it back up. And I hated to see him when we came around that last corner and he was sitting on the front steps of the church. Once a month, you know, we'd visit each one of those four congregations, and when we went to Nazareth, I knew Manuel was going to be sitting there waiting for me. And uh, I'd get out of the car, and he'd be right in my face, wouldn't let me squeeze by, and say, come on, Randy, let's go pray for the service tonight. And he'd take me up in the, you know, it was just a little one-room uh, building with... Uh, just hard chairs, no backs, and uh, the, the services seemed interminable. And uh, Manuel would get me over in the corner where they kind of had a little prayer corner, and put his arm around me, and he'd start praying, and this is how he'd pray. Lord, help Randy to see he's not living for you. Help him to understand how important his life is and that he needs to come back to Brazil to be a missionary to my people. Well, I was a junior and senior in high school at the time, and I really wasn't too keen on that prayer. And I I couldn't get away from it. And you know what? I never could get away from it because God just kept bringing that back to my memory forever afterwards. And I did respond to the Lord's leading and did go back to Brazil as a missionary for 20 years. Since then, God has led me in other directions, but that uh, memory of Manuel Vieta and that faithful prayer Uh, was just something I could never escape. The uh, passage of Scripture that I want to go through today is, um, I've entitled the sermon, Responding to the Commission. We're in the middle of the missions conference, and Friday night I spoke about responding to the call from chapter 16. And if you're familiar with that uh, chapter, that talks about about the middle of Paul's second missionary journey when he has come back through Asia Minor And uh, he wants to go out toward the coast, and the Holy Spirit won't allow him to go that direction. And that meant churches or places like Ephesus and Colossae, uh, the seven churches of Revelation are in that area, and the Lord wouldn't let him go that direction. So he thought he'd go northwards and into Bithynia, which is in the introduction to 1 Peter, and the Lord wouldn't let him go that way. So he gets over to Troas, and he hears the Macedonian call, 
And uh, as a result, he crosses into Europe, and for the first time, uh, the gospel passes into the New World. And uh, in Philippi, uh, responding to that call, and remember, it's a man from Macedonia that invites him, and he can't find any men. Uh, there aren't enough men. You only need ten to be able to form a minion to be able to have a synagogue. There's no synagogue in Philippi. So he get, goes down along the riverside where he hopes to find some Jewish people, and he finds a group of Jewish women. And he begins to speak to them, and Lydia is gloriously saved and becomes one of the best memories Paul has for the rest of his ministry. He opens up the, the uh, epistle to the Philippians with those words, I remember from the first day how you responded to the gospel. Well, that first day was down there by the river with Lydia. And then the second person, still no man, second person is a little slave girl who is demon-possessed, and her owners are using her to make money. And Paul exercises the demon, and that little girl is gloriously saved and released. So where's the man? The third one is, uh, as a result of that situation, he's beaten up and put in jail. He and Silas, in the end of chapter 16, are in the prison in Philippi, and God sends a mighty earthquake to break open the prison doors and break off the chains. And a jailer, probably a retired Roman soldier, a tough kind of person, probably lots of moral problems in his life for decades, and he and now his family are gloriously saved. And out of those three beginnings, all of which were less than auspicious, uh, God puts together one of the greatest churches that we read about in the New Testament. Well, now we come to chapter 17. And I want to uh, take it from that call, how Paul responded to the call at Philippi, to what happens next. And I've entitled this Responding to the Commission because we see in this chapter and in the opening of chapter 18 three very different kinds of circumstances or situations that Paul is now responding to as he um, continues to pursue God's call and what God wants him to do in that part of the world. So I'm going to read um, a chunk of text at a time. Normally, well, I've preached through Acts recently. I'm still working on it, and I think this is the uh, equivalent of five sermons. Uh, but not to worry. Um, I'm sure we will be done before the evening service at 6 when they have something else going on in here. Um, let me see what I can do to compact it a little bit. And there's some value in that because you get a little bit more of the big picture. So let me read, first of all, uh, verses 1 through 15. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and if you've been reading back there through chapter 13 and 14 and even into 16, that's, that's his modus operandi. That's what he does. He goes to a big city, a, a major town, a crossroads, an important city of commerce, and he goes to the synagogue first. And on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now you understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. There wasn't a Mr. Christ and a Mrs. Christ. This is a title, and uh, it's the exact equivalent of Messiah. So think about that in the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue and he reasons from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer. They didn't want that message. 
They tried to avoid that up to this point. They were looking for someone to free them from the tyranny of Rome. And he proves from the Bible that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said, and some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees. That was a dangerous crime in the Roman Empire, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and then they made Jason and the others post-bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message—read First and Second Thessalonians if you want to know how noble the Thessalonians were. Paul doesn't have anything negative to say about them. Full of praise. But the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Very interesting in verse 1 there, it starts with uh, his traveling over to Amphipolis and Apollonia. Now remember, he's just been severely flogged and spent a night in jail, probably not too comfortable. And he gets up the next day and takes off on a hundred-mile trip. Now, Paul's known for this. If you go back into uh, his first missionary journey, he was stoned in Lystra and gets up the next day and walks 60 miles over to Derby and does it again. So Paul just wouldn't give up. He, would, uh, he was a man with a mission, and he was bound to obey God's call. And uh, Apollonia, Amphipolis and Apollonia are about 30 miles apart. And it's about 100 miles total to get over there to uh, Berea, uh, excuse me, to Thessalonica. So those are probably overnight stops along the way, although we're not given all the details there. Now, when he gets to Thessalonica, the first thing that he does is to head for the synagogue. And uh, this is, has been his, um, his pursuit uh, previously, even though he is the uh, apostle to the Gentiles. He always begins in that Jewish context. And so when we read in, in, uh, Romans, in uh, Romans to the Jew first and also to the Greek, I don't think that was just a historical uh, statement. I think that was his, his method. He sought out the Jewish people first, and I think that uh, to a large extent we ought to do the same wherever we go with the gospel. If there are Jewish people in the area, 
what better place could there be to begin with the with God's word they may not receive all of it as we do but we have a common base to start from now before we're into the next chapter Paul is going to be in Athens and a completely different kind of a context there and we'll see how he handles that one uh, Philippi, or excuse me, Thessalonica is on the Ignatian Way, and that was uh, the first interstate, you might say, that linked up Byzantium, uh, today's Istanbul, all the way over to Rome, the Roman Empire. And uh, it was a, a, in a, an important, significant passage throughout the Roman Empire, and Thessalonica was a key city uh, located right on the Thermatic Gulf. It was a free city, but it had lost its free status because they started squabbling with Emperor Tiberius over taxes, and so they la- lost their tax-free right. It was a very wealthy city, a lot of commerce through there, a lot of uh, uh, important officials would be going through. Cicero, for instance, used to come over from Rome and do business in Thessalonica. And very interestingly, when he wanted to get away from all the hubbub, he would slip off the main road and go down to Berea and uh, have a weekend free from all of the um, entanglements that he might have been involved in. So these two places figure very much into the history and the geography of the time. They're also, uh, Thessalonica is a modern city known as Salonica, and uh, during World War II, uh, Hitler exported 66,000 Jews from there and exterminated them. So this has been a, uh, an important city throughout history and very easy to understand why Paul went there. And there's two things that we can notice in verse 2 and verse 3 is Paul's method and Paul's message. Beginning with his method there, as I've already said, he went first to the synagogue, as was his custom, and uh, he sought to establish churches in these main cities on main routes by going there and preaching and debating. There are four verbs that are used here in verse 2, and I think we can learn a lot from those even for what our approach ought to be in Bible study personally and certainly in sharing the gospel with others. The first word there is he reasoned with them. And that term means uh, a dialogue, but not the give and take, take kind of dialogue. It's a dialogue where you ask the question, and then when they fail on the answer, you give them the answer. It's a dispute kind of dialogue where he was very much in control of the uh, dialogue. The second word is proclaiming, and uh, that word has to do with the idea of promulgating or preaching. There's another word that's not used right here. It is used many times in Acts that has the idea of just a proclamation. You declare the scriptures. This one is a little bit more in keeping with the rest of the verbs here with the idea of arguing and presenting a defense, preaching out or speaking. The um, third word is um, explaining. He, um, that means to open them up thoroughly. Uh, if you remember uh, Luke chapter 24, when Jesus, uh, post-resurrection, appears to the disciples on the road going down to Emmaus, uh, remember how he opened the scriptures to them, all the scriptures. Same word here. This idea of being very thorough, working your way through. And of course that fits the context here with the idea of Paul um, going back to the Old Testament scriptures for proofs that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and the fulfillment of those prophecies. The fourth word that is used here, uh, and I think I 
mixed up my words a little bit. Re he reasoned with them, he explained to them, he proved to them. That's a different word yet, and that has the idea of placing alongside. So again, we're back to that idea of he takes the Old Testament scripture and he places alongside that the facts, in this case of the life of Jesus, and he shows the connection. So proving by placing alongside. And then the word proclaiming, uh, which I already explained. Now the second point that we can pull out of this in, in verse 3 also has some uh, application to the way we should approach evangelism. Uh, it says here that he... Uh, spoke about the Messiah and how he had to suffer and rise from the dead, and this in fulfillment of the prophecies. Now, this um, approach is something that in, in argument is called a syllogism, where you have a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. You have A plus B and therefore C. And you find this method all the way through the uh, book of Acts. There are others, and Paul himself uses others. But it's very common for the preachers in Acts, going all the way back to uh, the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches in chapter 2. But all the way through, they will say, the Bible says, da 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 That's premise, the major premise. Then comes B, minor premise. Jesus did, da 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 Therefore, C, conclusion, Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of those prophecies. And that's a very effective way to, way to present the gospel, especially to Jewish people, but to anyone. If you can show them an element of truth, and you know that the way to knock down a syllogism is show the error of either A or B. Therefore, C won't follow. So your case is airtight if A is accurate, and what could be more accurate than the scriptures, if B is accurate, Jesus did exactly what they said there, exactly what we should have expected, therefore, C. And that's the method or the, the message that he uses as he works with the people here at um, Thessalonica. Now, the result in verses 5 and 6 is a very unfair arrest. Uh, there's a rent-a-mob crowd here. And uh, the, the Greek word is actually agorion, and you recognize the word agora, the idea for a marketplace. This is a, a crowd of marketplace loafers. Um, I love the way King James uh, translated this one, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. It just says a lot, doesn't it? Um, A.T. Robertson is one of the great uh, commentators on, on uh, New Testament backgrounds and words like that, and he has a very good technical term to translate this one. He says, they're bums. <laughs> These are just a bunch of jerks that are hanging around the marketplace. Uh, if you've been to Israel, this is what you would see on a uh, late Friday afternoon or Saturday morning hanging around Jaffa Gate. These are the uh, foreign laborers who work hard six days a week, and they got a little bit of money in their pocket now, most of which they send back home to help their family. And they'll go down there and hang out. They'll buy a, as big a can of beer as they can find and just hang out and talk and gawk. And I'm, I'm guessing a little bit of money, you could probably get them to do just about anything. That's the case here. 
These are some marketplace loafers, and uh, they are brought together then to um, oppose um, this message from Paul. And that leads then in verses 7 and 8 to a very unfounded arraignment. The charges are, first of all, conspiracy. These guys have caused trouble everywhere. Harboring conspirators, that's specifically against Jason. Um, defying Caesar's decrees, and that has to do with what under the, in the Roman system was known as a religio illicita, a, uh, an illegal religion. In the early days, Christianity thrived because it was not seen as a new religion, but as a, a sect or a group within Judaism. The Roman law said that no new religion could be started. They had plenty of them already. And so any kind of a new cult or new religion that might pop, out, pop up was persecuted. But uh, that's what this crowd is trying to get. In fact, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we're going to see more of this, um, where several attempts are made to try and prove that Christianity is something new and therefore illegal in the Roman Empire. The other uh, charge here is treason, when they say he's, they're preaching another king. That's really dangerous in the Roman Empire. And uh, notice the security, then, that's finally uh, required here. The men, Jason and the others with him, had to post bail that um, Paul would not show up again or they would lose their, their funding. Now, this, at, at that night, uh, Paul gives them the slip, and uh, he is taken down to Berea. And once again, we see the same kind of a, an approach here. He goes to the synagogue. Uh, it's about 50 miles away. It's in the, to the southwest. It's in the foothills of Mount Olympus, a very beautiful spot, um, something like having the Bridger Mountains right behind, right outside your front window. Uh, it's not a significant town. It's not on the Via Ignatia. Uh, it's not even on the road down to Athens. It's a little bit complicated to get to Athens from there. And uh, that probably was uh, considered to be a good spot in the minds of those who were trying to protect Paul. He could kind of hide and get away down there. But um, he does have an opportunity to minister there in the synagogue in Berea. And it says that they were more noble because they listened to what he said and then checked it out. Um, one of the commentators says uh, they were more noble because not even did they receive the words of the Apostle Paul without checking them out. Could you imagine that? I mean, if he was preaching here today, would you be uh, flipping back and forth and checking verses and making sure that it says really what he says? We, we probably would have a tendency to think this guy knows his stuff. But the Bereans checked it out. There's a very interesting little um, mural down there uh, in Berea a mosaic mural that has um, a depiction of this. You can see the uh, route. I skipped ahead a little too fast there. Uh, where he's gone from Philippi over to Thessalonica, now down to Berea, and from here, eventually, he's going to get around to Athens. But in Berea, there's a mural that has the apostle preaching there, and I love the, the scenes of this group of uh, people that are listening to him. Take a little closer look at some of the faces. There's one guy there, rapt attention, just listening. Another guy is saying, did he just say that? And, a, and another guy is checking it out, reading this. And another one is, look at, he's got copious notes there. He's got a whole um, notebook of space to be able to take notes of what Paul is saying. They were more noble because they 
checked the scriptures. They verified what Paul was saying. Uh, ever since this time, a lot of churches and schools and organizations have used that title, uh, Berean Baptist Church or Berean this or Berean that, uh, in memory of um, that very good um, habit that the Bereans had. Now, that's at the synagogue in Berea, and once again, he, it's no longer safe for him to be there in the region. The uh, opposition comes uh, hounding him, and he heads out to the coast, a coastal town, and brothers escorted him away. And that gets us now down to verse 16, and a very different kind of approach now in the next few verses as he begins to reason with uh, the critics there. He has done some of that. But he has not, uh, he's been proclaiming the gospel and using the scriptures solidly through all of his presentation. Now he goes to Athens and some things change. And I want you to see what we can learn from that. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. That's normal. As he was, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. If you've been to uh, Athens and seen the Parthenon and seen the ruins of the other hundreds of temples in the area, what a place to say a thing like that. He does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Well, let me stick a little parenthesis in there, too. We are all one race, the human race, from God's hand. Therefore, this whole idea of races and racial distinctions, that's man-made. That's something that we have put together, and it is not from God. Those kinds of distinctions are unknown before the Creator of all things. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and be determined, and he determined uh, the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
As some of your own prophets, poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Ouch. (laughs) But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you, uh, hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council, and a few men became followers and, of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, the, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, a, and a number of others. Now we see a very different response to Paul's preaching in this section. Uh, as previously, he goes first to the synagogue. Uh, not everybody in Athens was a pagan, but it was very definitely a pagan university town, place for philosophers, a place of uh, new ideas. Uh, it's rather interesting here what uh, they call him, that, that babbler. The Greek word is that seed picker. You know, somebody is just kind of you know, pecking around and looking for something. Well, take a look down there at uh, verse 21 at who the seed pickers are. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. There's the seed pickers for you. They, um, the response uh, at the synagogue is apparently minimal, but he's reasoning there and he's also reasoning. That's the same word we just saw in the last paragraphs. He's reasoning also in the marketplace. And uh, as he's there in the square at Athens, in the marketplace, um, he begins to uh, engage with some of the philosophers. And uh, two specific groups are mentioned here, though there were many others, I'm sure, but specifically the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, the Epicureans um, followed a man by the name of Epicurus, and uh, he taught that you needed to indulge yourself. If it feels good, do it. Avoid hurts and any sort of pain. It's not fun, so don't do it. Uh, The Stoics were almost exactly the opposite. They followed Zeno, and uh, he taught that you needed to deny yourself, that you needed to endure hardship. You needed to grin and bear it, that that was the path to joy and fulfillment. So this really shows you kind of a contrast in some of the philosophical systems that were being debated there in that marketplace. And they take him then up to the Areopagus. Uh, The Areopagus, and some of you may have in your Bible the the name um, Mars Hill. It's actually the same thing. um, It comes from Ares, which is the Greek god that corresponds to Mars, the Roman god. And Pagus is the Greek word for a hill. So Mars Hill is a spot where a regular court would convene and where philosophers would gather, where debates were held. Um, Some things were adjudicated on that spot. It was just a a place of the the learned people of town. Uh, It actually had an academy with a membership there. When we got to the end of that chapter, we saw that uh, Dionysius was a member 
of the Areopagus. So going from the lower part of the city up there, that's the Parthenon to the left of the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. It's just a barren rock hill, which had a beautiful view of the city and a great place to be able to pull up a rock and sit on the floor and uh, debate. So Paul is there, and his beginning approach with this group is very conciliatory. Uh, he doesn't just jump right into uh, debate with them. Um, he begins by commending uh, their religiosity. Um, now, remember, he was disturbed at all the idols that he saw, but he even uses that one, the unknown God, as a means of entry with these people. Uh, he is appalled at their ignorance, but he is appealing now to their intelligence, and notice how he does it. I find this very instructive because it's kind of counterintuitive to what we think today. What's the first thing he starts to debate or talk about with them? Creationism. Now today, you know, we're kind of told, you know, keep that one quiet. That's not, you know, not everybody believes that, you know, has no place in the university. You know, if you've got, you want to say that in church, that's fine, but uh, that's baloney. Isn't that the common approach today? And this is exactly the jugular to which Paul heads, creationism. And notice what he does. What, it, what is his argument here? It's very, very sharp, very concise. It says, God created you, and therefore you need to reverence him, verse 24. God commands you, or he, he controls you, and so you need to respect him, verse 26. God convicts you, and you need to return to him, verse 27. And God commands you to repent of your sin, verse 30. And notice uh, what, it ha what it has to say there. He sa it says he commands now all people everywhere to repent. We've uh, forgotten that part of the message all too often. Apart from a repentance, apart from an, a recognition of our sinfulness, we'll have no reason to turn to God. Um, he's very demanding. He's going to expect something of us. And if we don't need anything, why would we do it? But if we recognize our sinfulness and our need to repent, then we're on a right footing to be able to understand this creator of all the universe and to receive the message that he has for us. So there's a very bold application here as Paul continues, uh, and he's very clear in what he says. The forbearance of God is great, but he will judge. That's a message that uh, you and I need. It's a message that our country needs. It's a message that the world needs. God is gracious, forbearing, patient. He's put up with a lot says he, in the past, he put up with that kind of ignorance. But there is coming a day when he will no longer, and we will respond to our Creator, whether we want to or not. So there's a very bold application on this occasion. And uh, notice the types of response that he receives. Uh, some of them sneered. There was derision. Some of them said, we want to hear you again. That's procrastination or delay and some few believed. That's the decision. But only some few. And it's of some interest here that 
Paul did not have a very good level of success at Athens, and commentators have argued ever since, did he do the right thing? Did he, did he handle this the right way? Uh, should he have preached differently? Um, here are some of the facts. He never went back to Athens, at least in the biblical record, uh, and always before he goes back and he goes back and he goes back repeatedly to the places where he has preached and left the gospel message previously. Um, he, there's no record of a church of Athens. There's no epistle to the Athenians. Wouldn't you love to read that if there was such a thing? That would be a very interesting document, I'm sure. Uh, it looks to, to be that the response here was very meager. Now, that does not mean in itself that Paul was wrong, that he uh, blew it. Uh, sometimes in God's providence and sovereignty, that's the result that he allows us to have. He has other purposes than that, both for the preacher as well as for the listeners. So that's no proof that Paul was wrong here. I think I'm going to guess that Paul probably was doing the right thing. He probably was led in the Spirit on each step of this trip. We have good evidence of that previously, and his going to Athens was probably by God's design. We just may not know all of the design that was involved in that. But here's one thing that's very interesting. His next stop in chapter 18 is going to be Corinth. And some things very definitely change when he gets to Corinth. And I think that's instructive too. So let's read now uh, chapter 18. And uh, the third point here, reaching out for new converts. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Um, there's something probably tucked between the lines right here. He didn't have a lot of funding. He was running low, and so he takes on some, some labor, some work, so that he can pay the bills. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, specifically we learned that they came from Philippi. They'd stayed back there. And uh, we read that the Philippians provided financial aid to Paul. Probably this was one of the first occasions. And the evidence is now he doesn't have to keep working, so he's able to devote himself exclusively to preaching. Now keep that in mind when we come to the applications part here. Uh, he was able to uh, devote himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, he still goes to the Jews thereafter, but he turns. This is a turning point in Paul's ministry, beyond all doubt. And he begins now to concentrate even more so on the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. That would mean he's a Gentile. He's a Greek, a uh, believer, but not Jewish. And Crispus, the synagogue ruler, a Jewish man, and his entire household believed in the Lord. 
and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Oh, man, what wonderful words those are. Uh, you remember the story about Joshua after Moses died? How'd you like to be the next leader after Moses? And those same words were pronounced there down along the banks of the Jordan River near Jericho. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Paul hears these words, don't be afraid. And by the way, the Greek there says, stop being afraid. He was afraid. This was a serious low spot. And he's fearing what might come next. And God says, stop being afraid, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, longest he's ever stayed anywhere so far, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Here's that religio illicita idea again. And just as Paul was about to give his own defense to speak, Gallio, the judge, says to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, you settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. My, my. And then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler. And I thought if you go back up there to uh, verse uh, 5, it was um, uh, Crispus. So already, verse 8, Crispus, already they've chosen another synagogue ruler. Apparently, he has put together this case against Paul, and he didn't do his homework. And he's thrown out of court. So they turn on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court, but Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Now there's some very interesting uh, elements here in what Paul faces in Corinth and some of the, uh, the, the different direction now that he is taking following the experiences of chapter 16 at Philippi, chapter 17 at Thessalonica and Berea, and now chapter 18 here at Corinth. And the first thing I think that we need to pay attention to is some of the fellowship that he has with his companions there. Aquila and Priscilla, great believers, and they come from Rome. Uh, they are tent makers. Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia with a uh, good report uh, from Thessalonica and gifts from Philippi. And Titius Justus and Crispus, a worshiper of God, a Gentile, and the, the synagogue ruler um, are great encouragement and help to him. Secondly, though, we see some real confirmation coming from the Lord, which grows Paul's faith and really helps him significantly as he um, is at a low spot. He was discouraged, and this gave him a fresh vision, and that will revive you. Paul, God says, I have many of the Corinthians here. And it says many were uh, believed and were baptized. Don't be afraid or stop being afraid. And he stays for a year and a half in that ministry. And then in the confrontation that uh, results there, he has great fortitude, um, first of all, by what happens with this uh, Gentile judge, Gallio. 
Galileo says, I'm interested in justice, but I'm not interested in Judaism. You leave that man alone, and you leave me alone. Now, there's a very interesting detail there about that Sosthenes. We don't know for sure, but Sosthenes, there's a man named Sosthenes that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and he's a believer now. Now, that's not an uncommon name. It could have been there was more than one Sosthenes. Could have been there was more than one Sosthenes in Corinth. Could have been there was more than one Sosthenes in Corinth who was related to the synagogue. But it seems to me that this man, after that miserable experience, probably also was one of those who came to faith. Gabeline says, The grace of God delights to take up such characters and show in them what grace can do. Now, let me give you six very fast applications out of this passage. We've been doing it all along, but just a summary here. First of all, God's servants all go through difficult times. It's not strange. It's not to be unexpected. This is something that happens by God's design. He has multiple reasons and purposes for why he allows it to happen this way. Secondly, God is always faithful, always faithful, and can be trusted to take care of his servants. That care may not take the form that you might have prayed for or imagined or hoped for. But God is so sovereignly in control of all things, he just never makes a mistake in this area. And thirdly, God's servants, therefore, should be faithful in serving him, no matter what. Whatever the difficulties or struggles or pain that God may lead you through, he, is, he knows better, and he is all-wise, all-knowing, and he loves you. He is never going to allow something to happen to you that's wrong, that's, that's going to destroy you in any way. Number four, speaking out for Christ and reasoning from the scriptures, as we see Paul doing repeatedly here, is the responsibility of every believer, not just if you're an apostle. It's a biblical thing to do, to reason from the scriptures. Now, these last three are all biblical things to do. Number five, we've forgotten how to upset the world for Christ. That's a biblical thing to do. Uh, it's too easy for us to get comfortable, take it easy, calm it down, not be uh, confrontational. But uh, what we find in the book of Acts is the believers are turning the world upside down for the Lord. It's a biblical thing to do. And finally, being persecuted for Christ is also a biblical thing to do. First Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, um, the godly will suffer persecution. In fact, if you're not suffering any kind of persecution in your life, you have reason to wonder, am I being godly? Because godliness is contrary to this world, and it will receive opposition and persecution. The godly will be persecuted. So that's a good lesson for us. Being persecuted for Christ is actually a great privilege. It indicates that God's hand is upon us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these words from Scripture, for the example of Paul and his companions, for the message that we can draw from this for our own missionary endeavors right here at home and uh, to all the fields of the world. Thank you for this missions conference where this has been emphasized. May we go from here in your grace and uh, the desire 
to follow you in those areas you've called us in Jesus' name.